we'll be moving into the scripture reading for today. And that is going to be from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 to 9. We've been taking a little bit of a break from this, and so looking forward to jumping back in. In our pew Bibles, this is on page 259. So we'll be doing verses 1 through 9. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. This is the Lord of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, thank you, elders, for the last four weeks going through our mission and values. I really appreciate the time you guys took out to do that. I know uh, it's very challenging to work full-time jobs and prepare that message and go into the depth that you did, so very much appreciated. We're going to continue on in our second Samuel series, and here in chapter 7 is actually a, a really, really important part of the Bible uh, that we're looking at. It's known as the Davidic Covenant. And and it actually holds a lot of the Bible together because of the promise that we find in here. And so what we're going to focus on this morning are are two things. And one of them, uh, the first thing we're going to focus on is God, God who makes these promises. And then the second thing we're going to focus on is the promise of God. And so let me start by attempting to paint you a picture. Um, I used to wrestle, and that's not the image I'm trying to paint, is not But um, we had this game called King of the Hill. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this game, but it would start out with the lightest guys on the team, and then whoever takes, the, takes one down, then the next heavier guy comes, and it would go all the way up until our super heavyweight, who was like over 300 pounds. And so you'd imagine that that over 300-pound fellow would be the king of the hill and, and that he would be the one that would, would stay there. Um, but if you go through the cycles of going back through the bottom of your team and then going all the way up again, and even though he might last a few more people, by the time you know, he'd get back around to like 150 pounds or so, that, that guy would be able to take him down because he's just kind of worn out by that time. So here is this cycling through, and, and you'd think like the biggest guy on the team keeps his position, but he doesn't. There's always one to be able to topple you over. So in chapter 7, we have the Lord telling David in verse 11 that the Lord will make you a house. And this isn't speaking merely of a physical house. The the Lord is declaring to David that he will make David a dynasty, that that David will have this succession lineage that will, will not be altered. 
Well, David's not even the super heavyweight. David's like this puny guy. Like, doesn't really have much. Look, look at verse 16. Because God even tells him this. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So even with the cycling through, he's still going to have that king of the hill. And your throne shall be established forever. Now as we look at these verses more carefully this morning, you would find that this is kind of a pretty outrageous claim. Because again, David is, is a lightweight. And you'd expect him to be toppled over as a king rather quickly based off of the people that are around him, even though God has said, like right now is like this time of peace, but the truth be said, everyone around him does not want him to be king. And here we have this king who is on Zion, 2 Samuel chapter 5. All he's done is take over this 11-acre plot of land. And he was, he was crowned the king of Israel, but then there were all these superpowers around him. And yet, here God is promising him this reign forever just because he takes over this 11-acre parcel of land. And after this victory, it jumps into this outrageous claim of you're going to have you're going to be king forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever well what happened before verse 16 king david had plans to build god a temple and nathan the prophet was told some things from god that were to be shared with david that god didn't want david to build him a temple and he tells nathan to tell david what we have here in verses 5 through 16. So let's first look at God, the God who promises, and then this can be found in verses 1 through 11, and then we're going to look at the promise of God, because what good is the promise of God without knowing who made the promise? Because can that person even keep their promises, even though they make one for you? So, so we need to look at who God is before we look at the promise he made. And the particular focus here is verses 5 through 7. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Something that I'd like to point out is just the humility of the Lord. That he moves with his people. And he's referring back to Exodus during the days of Egypt that God is moving with his people. Exodus 13, starting in verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So here we have this picture that the Lord went before them and traveled with his people all along without a temple. That he sojourned with them as a pillar of a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire in the night over, over this tabernacle, this tent, 
while Israel was in the wilderness. That God delivered his people in Exodus from Egypt. And you can read all about that in Exodus chapters 1 through 18. Now, why did God do this? Take a look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. The Lord is the God who delivers them out of Egypt and he dwells with them. Exodus chapter 25 through 40, you can read of God dwelling with his people. 25 verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, God is one who travels with us. He dwells with us, with his people, regardless of their conditions, their circumstances, their wanderings. And God wants to be close to his people. He wants to be among his people. And so you see the humility of God, that he is so humble that he travels around with this wandering people in the wilderness, in a tent, and he likes it. And here in chapter 7, God said in verse 7, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Did God ever say that? No. See, God is so humble. So it's no surprise that King Jesus was born in this animal pen and laid in an animal feeding trough. That's our God. He's a humble God. There are no royal accommodations for baby Jesus, our King. And as King Jesus began his ministry, what, what do we find him doing? He's sleep, sleeping along with his disciples under an open sky and shared their conditions and weathered those elements with them. He didn't have some palace. He didn't have some entourage covering him with things and feeding him grapes and fanning him with whatever. He desired to dwell with us, to be among us. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is God, the one who makes these promises? He's humble. The second thing is he's full of grace. He is a gracious God, and, and he's proven this in the past. He was a gracious God of the past. Look at verses 8 and the first part of 9. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. So we have this past tense, all those past tense verbs of what God did and showed his graciousness. And then now where do we find God and where do we find him going forward? Continue on in the second part of chapter 7 verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So we have the graciousness of God in the past and the graciousness of God moving forward. And verse 11 is circling back to verse 5 when God asks, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Like seriously, David, you're going to build me a house. 
I've been with you guys since the beginning. You don't build me a house. No, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. A dynasty. Not just a physical palace for a king. I'm going to build you a dynasty. David wanted to build God this temple. And God's like, no, I don't want that. Not yet, at least. And to get a better understanding of why this is, I think we need to first familiarize ourselves with that Near Eastern mindset of that time and get that context. Because people who worshipped other deities around them in the Near East wanted to provide a place for their gods so that they can place images of their god in that place and then offer their sacrifices and offer their gifts and food or whatever they felt like giving their god to sustain their god and to uphold and maintain their god. That's what they wanted to do. That they wanted to offer this food and then they, they played this music along with offering this food and they'd kind of wait around and let God entertain and eat his food and then after a while they'd go back and take their food and bring it away and of course the food wasn't physically consumed but, but the idea was that they were feeding their gods and they were sheltering their gods in this temple that they built for them and the idea behind all these pagan temples and all these sorts of things as you can imagine is a lot of work. You got to feed this God and you got to like play music for this God, and you got to do all these things for this God to appease this God. Really high maintenance God, right? High maintenance, maintenance God, high maintenance religion, and very different from our God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. You don't feed me, I feed you. That's our God. God is the sustainer. He is not one to be sustained. And so it's a very different worldview from everyone that was around them who was believing we have to erect this temple and we have to bring our offerings and gifts to sustain this God. And God's like, I'm not like that. I don't want you to even think that. So no, you're not building me anything. I don't need your temple. I don't need your food. I provided. I provided you shelter. I provided you food that I don't need you to sustain me. I don't need you to maintain me. And here kings in the ancient Near East had this belief that their gods first showed them favor. And that's how they became king. And so the very natural next step was, I was blessed by God, so now I'm going to erect for him a temple. And so they would have this temple, and because the gods showed them favor, and so then I'm going to erect a temple, therefore those gods are going to further bless me and further give me favor, because I then built a temple and we're giving them all these offerings and sacrifices, and all I'm having all these people worship this god, and so of course they're going to benefit me by guaranteeing me that I have a long future reign. And you can read all about this in ancient Egyptian history. You can read all about this in any Near East ancient history. That this is a pattern that all those kings and rulers had during that time. Oh, I've, I'm in power. I'm blessed. I'm going to erect some sort of temple or something to worship this God. And then I have this prophecy given over to me that I'm going to rule for a very long time. So God's like, I don't want you in that pattern. 
And so I don't want this temple. And so what's different about me is found here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this God, that God did show them favor, verses 8 and the first part of 9, that past grace. But you notice here, he totally skips the temple building part. I don't want your temple. He goes straight to the future grace, the second part of verse 9 and into 11, that David actually wanted to insert himself in this middle where he wants to build a temple, right? God bless me, I get, he gave me favor. We took over Zion, this 11 acre of land that we've never been able to take over. I want to build a temple. And God says, no, I don't want your temple. Straight to future grace. I'm going to bless you anyway. I don't need that to bless you. I have everything for you. I am for you. And so God says, not right now. Not right now. And we have this God who is humble, and we have this God who is full of grace. John chapter 1, verse 16. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And so this pagan belief is that, you know, God scratched my back, I became king. I'm going to scratch God's back by building him a temple. And then he's going to scratch my back again because he, we built him a temple. And so God showed us favor because, you know, we we're going to build this temple. And he'll promise to benefit us and know the God of Israel is different. I am full of grace regardless if you do something for me or not. I'm a God of grace. And sure, the temple will be built later by David's son, King Solomon. But God is making this point here in 2 chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to show his people, I'm gracious. I am the sustainer. You don't have to bribe me for anything. I love you. I've provided for you in the past. I'm going to provide for you in the future. I don't need you to provide me a temple. I do it because I love you. I do it because I'm gracious. And so he's completely different from any of those Near Eastern pagan gods in that he is a god of grace, not expecting something in return. Now, again, this is not to say that we are to do nothing with our faith because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But we don't have to go about our life thinking that God needs our contributions, that he needs something from us. And sometimes Christians have this attitude when we think that we need to bolster up what God's all about. When he's the God of grace in the past, he doesn't need you to do anything. He's fully sustained by himself, and he's a God of grace moving forward. He's the God of all grace. I mean, do you really think that God is just impatiently waiting for us to do something to bolster him? Are, are we that important? Do you think that he's on the edge of his seat wondering, what are, what are my, my followers going to do? Are they going to do that? Are they going to share that gospel with that person that doesn't? Are they going to feed that hungry person? Are they going to clothe that naked person? Oh, I hope they really do that. He's the God of grace for them too. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to do anything. Do you think God is anxious about your contribution to his kingdom? See, we need to realize that he is indeed the God of grace, grace upon grace. And God doesn't need our temple building. 
Now, there are some listening to this message today who need to hear that God doesn't need our temple building, that he's fully sufficient in himself. Because you're just out there busy thinking that you're doing these contributions to the kingdom when it's really just temple building and you're not realizing that he's just a fully gracious God that really doesn't need that from you. Thank God. This is really good news because if it was dependent on us, wouldn't we have already failed? Like, aren't we, aren't we, aren't we kind of behind, way behind? Thank God. So this is the God who promises. He's humble. He's full of grace. Here's the third thing. You are on his mind. Like, you preoccupy God's mind. He's thinking about you all the time. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And he's totally focused on his people. And so here we have God. He established David in order to benefit his people. It's not just about David, it's about Israel. He wants to bless them to provide them a place where they can live without fear. And living without fear is throughout the Bible. In Micah chapter 4, in verses 1 through 5, this is where it's written about a time in the future when God uh, consummates his kingdom, he makes everything right, and he says this in verse 4 of Micah chapter 4, but they shall sit every man, and this is speaking of everyone, Gentile and Jew, under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken to live without fear. You're always on God's mind, and he is set on having us live without fear, and we are always on his mind. And so we get a little glimpse of this in the church or in your, in, in your family relationships. You get a little glimpse of this because haven't you had those people in your church or in your family who are going through this challenging time and all you can do is you constantly think about them. They can't get off of your mind. And whether, you know, maybe a friend of yours you care dearly about, they, they've lost a loved one, or, or someone you really care about is experiencing these health challenges or relationship challenges, and someone in the church that you care for is just going through really difficult times. They're just always on your mind, and so you, you pray for them. And you wake up in the middle of the night, and they're on your mind, so you lift them up in prayer. And sometimes I, I meet these folks where we're just going through pastoral counseling, and sometimes they're just placed on my mind more than others, and for some reason I'm just shaken awake in the middle of the night, and they're on my mind, and like, there I am praying for them. I'm like, God, it's like three in the morning. Can you just like do it like three hours later? But no, I'm like awake, and I'm praying for them. And whenever you pray, you're praying for them. Every meal, where you're driving, and you're just preoccupied with their welfare. And it's a glimpse into what it's like for God towards you, that he loves you. And you're always on his mind. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That he's doing that all the time. He's interceding. 
See, we have the grace of God who, who died for us and who is interceding in the present, in the future for us. We are always on the mind of God and God doesn't want us to live in fear because fear preoccupies your mind and doesn't leave room for anything else. Fear is crippling. It distracts when it preoccupies your mind. And God is preoccupied with his people's welfare, with our welfare. John chapter 10, starting in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, God is preoccupied with his people's welfare. He is this God who makes these promises. He's humble, he's full of grace, and we are always on his mind for our welfare. He's wanting the best for us, and that's who God is. That's who we need to know he is before we can move into his promise. Because we have his promises in verses 12 through 16, but now that you know who he is, now you can say, I get the promise, and I can count on it. I can rest on that. Verses 12 and 13, the promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, God's promise is that the kingship of David will have an everlasting dynasty. Kind of like these kings who built a temple and then their expectation is we're going to rule for a very long time. No temple needed. I'm giving you this grace regardless of this temple building. That, David, you are going to physically die, but there's going to be this succession of kings that comes directly from you. Physically from you. And you can read Psalm 2, 89, 110. It further highlights this promise of this messianic king through David's succession lineage who will rule the nations. And the promise is the kingdom of Christ even in David's death, verses 12 and 13, even through sin. And we know David did lots of sin, verses 14 and 15. Here's the sin. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So there, there are going to be these sinful people throughout this promise that God made from David all the way until Jesus. And God is going to deal with them. God is going to deal with that sin. And even though some will be horribly sinful, including David himself, God will not break his promise. That even death won't break the promise because, David, you're going to die. And even sin won't break the promise because, David, you and all your kids after you are going to sin. And even the passing of time won't break this promise. Look at verses 16 and 17. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. And so some of you are thinking, but didn't David's kingship end? Just look at history, Albert. 
his reign ended, right? Babylonian captivity, isn't that the whole reason why Nehemiah happened? Persian Empire, Syrians, Roman Empire, like we can go on and on. That kingdom ended long ago. There's a remnant. Matthew chapter 1. That's why that genealogy is recorded for us. And it goes all the way from Adam until Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Let me read that. Let me just, I'm kidding. We're not going to do it. That lineage is not wiped out. It's recorded all throughout that the Davidic dynasty fulfilled all the way until Christ. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 32, we'll read this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, this is the promise. The promise of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ where death has lost its sting, where Christ is victorious over sin forever. See, nothing can stop this promise from happening. Not death, not sin, not time. That nothing is going to stop the promise of God from being fulfilled. That God is going to bring to pass a kingdom that he promised David. That it will come to complete fruition in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that can be done to prevent this from happening. Now without this promise and without this assurance, there really is no reason for you and I to be here this morning. There, there is no Christianity. So you can see why 2 Samuel chapter 7 is so important, this Davidic covenant, because if this isn't here, there's no reason for Christianity. Now this promise of God doesn't mean that you and I are going to be exempt from hardship, pain, suffering, fear, difficulty. We're not promised any of that immunity from the challenges of life, and all you have to do is look at David's life himself and even up to Jesus Christ himself. All those feelings of grief, all that feeling of loss, all the tragedies of life, you and I are going to experience. We're going to live through those things. The promise does mean that Jesus, the son of David, will reign as king, and if you have Jesus, you have a place in the kingdom. You have a seat at the table. And there's nothing that can change that. You have a place. Nothing changes it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you did and for reigning. We eagerly wait for you to come back and set everything right. And in, until that time, we do realize that we are going to experience all these different challenges of life where we are hurt, where we are betrayed, where we experience the same feelings that you did here or that you didn't even exempt yourself, that you were so humble 
to dwell among us and to live a life like us and yet without sin. And so, Lord, would you empower us, equip us to live a life like yours. May we not take advantage of this wonderful promise that you have given us. May we hold to it, knowing that you are a humble God, that you are a gracious God, and that we are always on your mind and you always are looking out for our best welfare, even though we suffer through these things. But it's not like you exempted yourself either. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements, let's take that out. And if you don't have it, just put your hands up and uh, we can uh, get some over to you. And if anyone is is wanting or needing prayer, um, please feel free to come up. Susanna's in the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you about uh, the things that you need prayer for or want prayer for. And we'll first take out this wafer symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. Christ, who right before this took that bread and broke it at the Last Supper, he overcame death. He overcame sin for all eternity. We take this in Jesus' name. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, although these elements are so simple, they are so rich in meaning. We thank you for this constant reminder of you dwelling among us, being with us, and what can even closely resemble that but taking these elements in us, that that you are indeed indwelling. And although these are just physical elements, we do have a spiritual being living among us, dwelling among us, in us, upon us, in your Holy Spirit. And so you've never left us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.